on Friday night, we, we came and we gathered around the communion table and we reflected on the suffering of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And, and as you read that crucifixion narrative in, in whichever gospel you choose, you begin to see the plan of the Father at work revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. And we fixed our eyes upon Calvary, which we will again today do when we take communion. But there's a really important reality for us that if it were not for the resurrection, the crucifixion is meaningless. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. This moment, this resurrection moment is pretty important. This moment is the crux of our faith. And I, I want to take a little bit of time to look at the three reactions we have here to the resurrection. And I want to ask you, and I want you to leave here with the question, how do you respond to the resurrection? Many people ended up on Roman crosses claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be a Christ. But I believe that there is only one that rose from the grave, never to die again. And when he rose as such on the third day, it was this public announcement from God the Father that he was fully satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. So I ask you, do you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Three responses. That of Simon Peter and John, the author of the gospel, that of Mary Magdalene, and thirdly, eh, this group of disciples minus Thomas. So let's start. Mary has had an encounter with the angel. Mary and the group of women. Often you would refer to one person when you refer to a group. So when it talks of Mary Magdalene, we're thinking of the group of women that were first with her when they entered the tomb. And the angel came and said, he is not here, he is risen. And she legs it as Jesus tells her. She goes and finds disciples and Peter and John are the first that she finds. And they leg it. They leg it to the tomb. Peter leaves first, but John gets there first. I'm guessing he was younger, or he was fitter, or maybe he was just a bit eager, but they were literally racing each other because they were so, I don't think it was excitement. I think it was just intrigue. What on earth is going in here? Mary says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And at this moment, nothing adds up. That's what we're going to start to see in the resurrection story here, is that it doesn't really make sense to them very quickly. And at this moment, it's not clicked. They don't think we know of the scriptures. We know of what Jesus has told us. We know what is to come. So Peter legs it. John beats him there. John gets there first. And John gets there. And instead of this hurried anticipation to enter, he stands outside. I remember as a seven-year-old boy starting a new primary school, Riverside Primary in Stirling at the age of three. I was born in London, and believe it or not, I had a Cockney accent. Um, it didn't last very long, but I, I remember walking into that primary three classroom, being asked to stand at the front and introduce myself, and just the utter terror that came over me. 
Because what was in front of me utterly terrified me. And I see John as a little bit like a little boy here. No concept of what's going on. But he just stands where he thinks he's safe outside and he peers his head in reserved, waiting, cautiously looking. And what did John see? He saw the grave clothes lying on that stone shelf with no evidence of violence or crime. But the grave clothes were empty. They lay there almost as if they were some kind of empty cocoon. They hadn't been moved. And what's so remarkable about that? Well, if you were going to go and rob a grave, you're not terribly bothered about how you leave the clothes. You're not going to remove somebody and then think, let's just be respectful to the family by wrapping this up and leaving it here. Plus, I imagine you just take them with you. But here they lay spotless and untouched. The only way that was possible, the only way it was possible for those grave clothes to lie as they did is if Jesus had literally passed through them. And then eventually after John's there, Peter gets there. And he just charges in. He just charges, as we would expect him to do, just goes right on in. And that gives John a little bit of confidence. And it seems quite incredible, doesn't it, at this point? The guys just don't have a clue what's going on. They have no expectation of their, their teacher and their master to rise again. But things are starting as they see this in front of them, things are starting to fall into place. And I wonder at this point, what kind of faith do these two guys have? I think they have a faith based on evidence. I think they have a faith based on whatever I can see on front of me, whatever is there to convince me, I'll believe that. But however good evidence is to convict and convince our minds, it'll never transform our life. If our faith is only built upon what we tangibly see in front of it, well, it's not really faith at all, is it? John enters behind Peter and he looks at what is in front of him. Verse 8, he saw and believed. Three times we look at this word seeing or saw in verses 5, 6, and 8. We start with this glancing, this really tepid, this really timid, what is going on, what's in there? And then we come to Peter's more, more intense, carefully observing, watching. This has now grabbed my attention and now I understand. Now I'm looking. And then we come to this verse 8 of seeing and believing. It was this, yeah, I'm now really beginning to get this. This is now starting to make sense. You see, we've gone just in those few short verses with the resurrection of Jesus from utterly perplexed and confused and timid to all of a sudden, actually, I see and I believe. And we see here the resurrection faith beginning to dawn. But I wonder if your faith this morning is a little bit like Peter and John's. I wonder if you're just looking in. I wonder if you're looking at Jesus 
Maybe this is your first time at church and this is your first glimpse of Jesus. But maybe you read of Jesus, you hear about Jesus, especially at Christmas and Easter, Christians rattle on about uh, Jesus. Maybe you're spending some time with Christians thinking these people are just a little bit different to everybody else. Maybe your heart's being stirred a little bit when you think about Jesus. Maybe you've come and you've sung and you've thought actually that there's something in this, there's something about this. If that's you this morning and if you are just peering in, if you are just looking, I urge you to consider seeing and believing. And take real comfort in verse 8. I love verse 8. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John's like, FYI, we hadn't made the link. We didn't get it. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, I'd love to be a Christian. I'd love to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but I just don't know enough. And I just don't get it. Well, the good news for you is you don't need to know everything to follow Jesus. What Jesus asked of us in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus is asking of you. You don't have to know the ins and outs of the end times. You don't have to know the ins and outs of every big ethical issue. You don't need to understand the intricacies uh, of Old Testament scripture. That stuff comes and we grow into that in our discipleship and our Christian maturity. But the question is, do you believe? Do you believe as it began to dawn on Peter and John that Jesus died for your sins and was raised to life? Secondly, we come to this reaction of Mary Magdalene, we meet her again, just an utterly devastated and distraught woman. This woman loves Jesus. She was there towards the end when almost everybody else has abandoned them, eh, had abandoned Jesus. And she was there going with spices to finish preparing and anointing the body of Jesus in this state of mourning and the stone was rolled away. These were big stones. Joseph of Arimathea couldn't himself move that stone, but he needed Nicodemus to help him. These were big, big stones. And of course, an angel appeared to her. She ran, she got the disciples, and then she comes back. And she sat outside the tomb and wept. Mary had already been to the tomb. I want to show you this slide. I found this really helpful. If you're interested, the Gospel Coalition have a course called The Final Days of Jesus. If you Google it, the Gospel Coalition, The Final Days of Jesus, it, it gives a really helpful summary of Easter week, but it combines and brings together all the Gospels because it can be quite difficult to understand. It can be quite difficult to understand how does this in John fit when we don't first see Mary and he is risen, hallelujah. I find this really, really helpful. But Mary has been with the women. She's been told he is risen. She goes, she comes back. But still it doesn't dawn for her because she sits distraught. Let me read that first encounter from Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then she's told to go quickly and tell the disciples what she did. But even after this encounter, even after being told the glorious news that he has risen, here she sits weeping. I think she thought it was all a dream. I, I think she's sitting there thinking, I've just imagined all of this. None of this is real. I don't quite get it. There's no way this happened. Surely not. It hadn't quite sunk in for her. So she goes for this other look. And there were two angels seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot, verse 12. Woman, why are you crying? The angel asks. And there's a sincerity to that question because angels, I don't think they understood. I, I think it was a genuine question of why are you crying? All of heaven is rejoicing. The gates have been flung open. The curtain has been torn in two. All there is is rejoicing because the Redeemer lives. Because that was their reality. Because they cannot relate. The angelic beings cannot relate to us in a way that God can. They didn't used to be people. They aren't saved because they don't need saving. Because they don't have souls. Because they're not of Adam like we are of Adam. They can't understand the weight of sin. And heaven at this point is just so full of rejoicing. Death has been defeated once and for all. The Son of Man is alive. He's not here. He's not dead, but he lives. And I think that's the angel's question, just out of this genuine confusion. Why on earth are you crying? Why are you not rejoicing? They've taken my Lord away. And this second voice comes. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? He's gone. They've taken him away. If you've taken him, please just tell me where he is so I can go and get him. So that I can look after his body in the way that I was preparing to do. Please. Please don't do anything with the body of Jesus. I love him. Please can I have him? Mary, Jesus said. She knows that voice. We don't know a huge amount about Mary, but from her first encounter with Jesus in Luke 8, we learn that Jesus cast out seven demons from her. Oh boy, did she know that voice. She knew that voice because that was the voice that had the power to drive out demons. She knew that voice because that was the voice that had the ability to transform and restore at merely a word. That is the voice of my teacher and my master. And she turns to him. And I imagine just tears streaming down her face. Goosebumps on top of goosebumps. Utterly perplexed. Completely amazed. And everything else all at once. And I think it's impossible for us to exaggerate the emotional impact of this moment. 
Our TVs today are packed with cliffhangers and surprises and plot twists. But I think this surprise appearance of Jesus makes all of that look boring. And then she cries, Rabboni. Teacher. And now she gets it. Now it makes sense. The other reason this encounter is so big is because in a culture where women are dismissed as inferior, they saw themselves as students. And even in this encounter, Jesus is dispelling the myth that women have any less value than men. And the fact of the matter is that it was women, not men, that first realized and proclaimed the resurrection of Christ. And it would have been utterly scandalous because a woman's testimony was not trustworthy. A woman's testimony wouldn't hold up in court. But the Gospels unanimously present these women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's just a small piece of evidence as to the authenticity of the resurrection story. Because if you wanted to tell a story and get people to believe it, you wouldn't use women to do it. You would use a Roman soldier. You would use a disciple. You wouldn't have these gospel stories that together take some work for us to understand. They would all be completely in line and completely uniformed and all make sense if this was some kind of made-up story. If you wanted to make up a story that would travel this world, you wouldn't start with a bunch of disciples that didn't have a clue what was going on. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I'm going back to be with my father soon. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my disciples. I have seen the Lord. Mary proclaims. Friends, have you seen the Lord? Not in the flesh like Mary. But have the eyes of our hearts gazed upon Jesus as he has revealed to us? Have you encountered his presence? Have you spoken to him? Have you listened to him? Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Have you seen him? Do you know him? Have you seen the grace of Christ lavishly poured upon your life? Do you know that you are forgiven? Do you know Christ's mercy that covers a multitude of sins? Do you know that your slate is wiped clean? Do you know the comfort of Christ and the trials of life? Because if you do know him, you'll never be the same again. And like Mary, you're sent as a messenger of the gospel that is to go to all nations starting here in Hamilton. Today is the day that we respond to the resurrection of Jesus. Because no matter who we are, the most exciting news we will ever hear, ever hear is Jesus is alive. What a day it must have been for us. Multiple trips to the tomb 
multiple retellings to everybody she came into contact with. Reports of this encounter on the road to Emmaus that isn't in John's gospel starting to reach. And now by this Sunday evening, despite all of this excitement, we come to the group of disciples from verse 19. We have this group of disciples, no Thomas. I'm not entirely sure what he was up to, but that encounter comes later. We don't have time to look at him today. But as far as the disciples could see, this wider group, it was all over. They had just come up against this blank wall. They were retreating. They were terrified because Jesus had been crucified, and now we are followers of the blasphemer, and oh man, we are in trouble. They're terrified. They're questioning, I assume, everything. They're probably feeling pretty foolish. I imagine there's a big sense of regret for their desertion of Jesus on the cross. They didn't think it was going to end like this. They hadn't grasped what was to come. But for them, there was nothing left except this reoccurring thought of just helplessness and hopelessness. So they sat in this room behind locked doors and they waited they literally sat and waited for somebody to burst the door down and probably come and arrest them don't imagine there was a lot said in those conversations I don't imagine there was many conversations I imagine there was a lot of waiting silence all hope is gone and then suddenly without anybody unlocking a door, without a door swinging open, Jesus appears in the middle of the room. There he was, in their midst, standing amongst them. And I'm imagining that the response is a little bit similar to that of Mary's. Hearts are racing, adrenaline is flowing, goosebumps on goosebumps. And Jesus transforms. He transforms their fear into courage. And he did this by doing four things that we're going to finish with. Firstly, he came to them. We have no idea where they are at this point, but Jesus came to them. In his real and resurrected body, we know it was real, they, they touched it, they felt it, but still the one that passed through grave clothes and passed through the door, but yet it is a real body. I don't know how he did it, well I do, he's Jesus, that's how he did it. But it was a solid body, a real body, and it comes. He also ate fish with them that we read in Luke 24. And Jesus comes and his greeting to the men, to those gathered is shalom. Peace be with you. And I find that a remarkable response from a man who has just been deserted by his friends. Surely the first words of Jesus are just a rebuke for their unfaithfulness or their cowardice or just how pathetic they are that he's told them time and time again who he is and what he's going to do. And here they sit terrified in a corner of a room. But he's Jesus. So he didn't do that. He comes to them in peace. Think of those words of Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. 
You see, the work of the cross was a work of peace. And the message that Jesus came straight to them with was a message of peace. And the message that they would go and carry would be a message of peace. And it's a message on a mankind that has declared war on God, but God would declare peace to those who believe. He came to them and he reassured them. He showed them his hands. He showed them his sights. He gave them a moment to understand and to discover. Because if all of that wasn't enough, still they needed to touch. All of that wasn't enough for them. This isn't some ghost. This isn't some angelic being. But this is Jesus. And here was the evidence. Here was the evidence of the price paid And this group of guys, he takes them and he commissions them. Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He tasks them with taking forth this message of the gospel. He tasks us with the message of, uh, with, with, with the commission and with the uh, responsibility of taking this message to the world. What a privilege. It is utterly humbling to realize that Jesus loves us as the Father loves him. And that we are in the Father just as the Son is in the Father. And it is humbling to recognize that we are sent into this world as the Father sent the Son. Jesus' time is almost up. He's about to go. He's about to ascend to heaven. And he reminds them of the message that they will take into the world. It must have filled them with great joy to realize that despite their many failures, despite their inability, despite their doubts, the Lord was entrusting them with his word and his work. I can relate to that. Can you? Can you relate to this message that God uses broken people? to take his word out into this world. They had forsaken him, they had fled, they had be betrayed him, denied him. You know, Peter denied him three times and in a few days he would preach the word and thousands would be saved. And he enabled them. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of Genesis 2, 7, when God first breathed life into that first man. And it is like with the breath of God, creation, eh, breath was breathed into humanity. And now through Christ and this breath in the new creation, it means spiritual life for us. The spirit that dwelt with them in the person of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit was to come to them. This is what Jesus did for those disciples. Their response to the resurrection was one of utter fear. And this was Jesus' response to them. What a few days. Without a doubt, the most dramatic few days that have ever been known. But as these early believers went into the world, as they announced the good news of salvation, 
If sinners would come and if they would believe on Jesus, their sins would be forgiven. And as he was mocked, who can forgive sins alone but God? If you believe in Jesus and if you trust in him for your salvation, I can confidently stand here and say that your sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ has paid the price. These people that we encounter here now had both peace with God and the peace of God. They had a holy and they had a high commissioning from Jesus himself given the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. They had been given the privilege of taking the good news of forgiveness to the whole world. And so have we. So the question is, what will you do with Easter? Will your life remain unchanged? Or like the disciples, will we be moved from this apathy and fear towards faith and surrender to him how have you responded to the good news of Jesus Christ that he has paid the price and wiped your slate clean that now you may boldly approach the throne of grace let's pray Lord Jesus, I thank you that despite our failures, despite the times, time and time again that we let you down, you come to us in peace. You extend to us peace with God through your sacrifice. We thank you, Lord, that in the mess and the confusion that we saw on that resurrection Sunday, you were working in and through it that you had beaten death. That you took time with your people. That you drew alongside them and helped them understand. And too like them, Lord, would our encounters with the resurrected Jesus mean that our lives are never the same again. Amen.